If you'd like, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. It's on page 838 of your pew Bible. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, heavily focused on verse 13. It's also on page 30 of your sermon guidebook. That's where we're at this week in our march through Mark's gospel. Why don't I pray for us and ask for God's help as we turn now to looking at his word. Heavenly Father, thank you um, that you feed us. And we have all types, Lord, of spiritual hungers that we try to feed with natural things. And this may be our only shot all week, Lord, for many of us, where we're actually sitting before your word. So would you please, Lord, as we're gathered together, would you feed us with food that will last? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's better, to choose or to be chosen? What do you prefer? To choose or to be chosen. Modern people, especially Americans, love our freedom to choose. And we, we rightly resist the idea of someone making all our decisions for us, telling us what to do, what to think, who to be. We like the freedom to choose. We like to have many options to choose from. And in fact, we like to keep our options open so that even when we do choose, we keep our options open so that we're not then limited by our very own choices. We are choosy people who love to choose. This is why I find it surprising to see the continued success of the TV show, The Bachelor. I know you don't watch it. It's in its 27th season. You know the plot, perhaps. One guy, several gals vying for his attention. And now the, the gals on the show, they're choosy. They've chosen to be on it. They talk about the things they want to choose or like about the guy. They choose to let him get to know them. But, but the suspense of the show has nothing to do with their choice. It has everything to do with this very deep drama that seems to touch something very deep in our hearts that we, we want to be chosen. So which is better, to choose or to be chosen? Well, I don't much like The Bachelor. I prefer to watch the NFL. And if you're, if you're like me, during the NFL offseason, you go through a little bit of a withdrawal and you actually will tune into things like the NFL Combine and the NFL Draft. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. So I remember um, sometimes when you watch the NFL Draft, you, you see these incredibly gifted athletes who have had the freedom to choose to play a sport and their gifting has afforded them all these choices. They could sit at any table they wanted to at lunch because they're so popular in high school. They get all these recruiting letters from colleges. They have their choice of schools to go to. Once they sign their NFL contract, they'll have their choice of cars or homes to build. And yet, if you watch the NFL draft, particularly in the first round, and you see their faces, they're all sitting there wondering what? Well, I'd be chosen. I remember in 2007 watching uh, the NFL draft when Brady Quinn was the likely 
quarterback to go first out of Notre Dame. He had set like 36 records at Notre Dame. People thought he'd go third. He's from Cleveland. Cleveland had the third pick and they're showing his face on camera and the Browns get up there with their pick and they don't choose him. Then people think, well, he's going to go ninth for the Dolphins. The Dolphins don't choose him. And with each pick that goes by, you see this incredibly strong, gifted man look smaller and smaller and so insecure. Why? Because he wasn't being chosen to the point where the commissioner actually pulled him off the floor and said, this is just too embarrassing. Let me give you another example, a little different. In order to get a job as a pastor, I had to go to seminary. Now, seminary is a big investment, time-wise and financially. And it's one of these investments, you put a lot into it, and it doesn't necessarily fling you into a super lucrative field. So you, you ask your classmates, I mean, it's not... It's kind of normal to be at law school. It's not normal to be at seminary. So you ask your classmates, how'd you end up coming here? Why are you here? And I was always shocked by some of the answers. People would say, well, you know, I'm not really sure. You know, I, I just, I, I chose to do this after college. I'd gone to a Bible college and I thought this was the natural next step. Or, you know, I, I chose to come because I really enjoy learning and I want to learn more about church history. Or, you know, well, my dad's a pastor. So I figured I would just choose to follow in his footsteps. So I came to seminary. How different was the response of Johann von Holst, my friend who had become a Christian living in Stockholm, Sweden in high school, radically converted, left a lucrative career at Skansa, the big company in, out of Stockholm, and to his parents' chagrin, moved across the ocean to come to seminary and spend his very last dime on getting a theological education. Johann, why are you here? Why did you choose to go to seminary? I didn't choose anything. God called me. I don't want to be here. I didn't choose this. <laughs> Johan, Johan would say, God makes me, he's making me do this. So let me ask you again, when it comes to the deepest needs of your heart, or when it comes to the motivation you need for your vocation or your purpose in life, or when it comes to securing who you are, which is better? This, these endless options and this so-called freedom to choose or the experience of being thunderstruck because you have been chosen. In our study in Mark's gospel, we arrive today at Jesus' appointing of the 12 apostles. It's in Mark 3, verses 13 through 19. And what I, what I want to help us see is that this appointment of these 12 men comes at a crucial moment where Jesus is actually drawing a line between the notion of choosing him and the reality of being chosen by him. And this will make a fundamental difference for the quality of his people and for how he will build his kingdom. So there's really just one idea I want to explore with you today. One, one truth that comes out of the Bible that we'll learn, and it's simply that it is better to be chosen by God than to falter in our so-called freedom to choose our own way. And I want to first show you how this comes out of our passage and then simply ask a couple questions. How does this implicate us? How does this fact of comparing choice to being chosen, how, how does it shape us or impact our lives? So in order to get into our passage, 
it's helpful just to notice something about the context first. And unfolding in Mark up to this point and around our passage is a theme that you could call responses to Jesus. And one of the things Mark, Mark's gospel does is it shows us how different groups respond differently to Jesus. So you have the, the group called the religious leaders. And their response to Jesus has been at first somewhat inquisitive and it turns soon to rejection. So now there's, there's honestly, there's good reasons for this for the, from their perspective. I mean, Jesus has claimed that he can forgive sin, something that only God can do. In, in chapter two, he also says that he's the bridegroom. This is a passage we didn't look at, but, but that would mean that he's the husband of Israel. He's Yahweh. Then he says at the end of chapter two that he's Lord of the Sabbath. So when we, we get into chapter three, getting close to our passage in Mark three, verse six, we find in fact the, the Pharisees or the religious leaders, they are plotting with the Herodians. This would be like the religious leaders and the political leaders coming together. They're, they're plotting, it says on verse, verse six of chapter three about how to destroy him. So that's one response to Jesus, choosing to destroy him. Now there's another group that responds differently. They're the crowds. This term comes up a lot in Mark's gospel, the crowds. The crowds represent us. This is just kind of like what, what people do when they respond to a charismatic or gifted leader. And the crowds are very drawn to Jesus to say the least. They, they marvel at his teaching. They're amazed, maybe not so much at the content of his teaching. They're amazed at the way he teaches, his authority. They are thunderstruck by his power to exercise demons. And they're absolutely smitten by his ability to heal. At the end of chapter one, we find the whole city gathering around the house where Jesus was. And he comes out and it says, he healed many who were sick with various diseases. Now, just prior to our passage in chapter three, verse seven through 12, Mark seems to highlight this, this crowd in such a way as to say, Jesus is at the peak of his fame. He, he's probably well over a year into ministry. And, and I just want you to notice, this is, this is verses seven through 10 I'm gonna read to you to get a feel. Mark wants you to have a feel. Before we look at the appointing of just 12, you, you need to feel what's going on. Picking up at verse seven. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. You, you don't think about Jesus being able to be crushed. He's fully human. He could have been killed in a stampede. I mean, if nails can go through his wrists, he could have been killed. That's how big the crowd is. So he says, get a boat. Literally, it says, verse nine, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now, why'd they want to get to him? Verse 10, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Friends, this is well before hospitals and medical experts. I mean, people who got sick in the ancient world were doomed. 
So when you heard of a great healer, you came. So Mark's telling us, we don't have our, our Bible map in front of us, but he's very carefully telling us, like if we had a compass, people are coming from the south, Judea and Jerusalem. They're coming from the east, that's beyond the Jordan. And they're coming from the north, Tyre and Sidon. Now they're not coming from the west because that's the Mediterranean Sea. But, but and, and notice, Mark hasn't told us that Jesus has been ministering in these areas. He tells us instead, verse 8, that they simply heard about all that Jesus was doing. So this massive following makes what happens in our passage seem strange. Because Jesus, he he leaves. Verse 13, he went up on a mountain and called to him those he desired and they came to him. Going up on a mountain is like Jesus withdrawing. He's moving away from the crowds in order to appoint a tiny group of people. Now, I, I think if, if we were advising him at this point and, and we thought, okay, this, this guy's a great leader. He needs a movement. We would say, this is the moment like leverage the movement. Look at your polls. Your numbers are fantastic. The people love what they love your message. Don't change anything about it. Keep healing. They'll keep coming. And by the time we go to Jerusalem, you'll have, you'll have hundreds of thousands of people with you. But instead, Jesus withdraws and he begins building with a motley crew of 12 completely ordinary average men. Why? What might this tell us? And here I think is our first point. Jesus is drawing a distinction between those who choose him and those who will be chosen by him. And in this sense, he is showing us how the kingdom of God must be built. The crowds represent our, our universal human impulses to flock to things. We flock to things for various reasons, but when it comes to a great leader or movement, typically it's for one of two reasons. Number one, we just like the person leading. We find them interesting or entertaining, so we go, we show up. The second reason is because we could benefit from this movement or this person right? We could get something out of this, so we want to go along with it. Now, the great crowd is not there because they want to submit to Jesus' lordship. Verse 8 tells us the great crowd had been hearing all that Jesus was doing, not saying. They want to get healed. I want you to think for a moment about the phrase, I like it. I like it. I like this shirt. I like this church. I like this marriage. I like is the logic we use for choosing things, anything from food to jobs to houses to spouses. But if our choices are based on this little phrase, I like it, just as easily we could change to the phrase, I don't like it. And in our individualistic world, obsessed with our freedom to choose, the phrase, I don't like it, acts like a logically airtight argument for rejecting pretty much anything. From rejecting your vegetables to your marriage. From deciding to do away with an old outfit, I just don't like it, to do away with your religion. 
just don't like Christianity anymore. If Jesus' following is built on the phrase, I like Jesus, I like what Jesus does for me, and so I choose to follow him. If his kingdom is built on that phrase, Jesus isn't actually leading anybody. He's in fact being led by our opinions of him and he's beholden to our own affections for him. But if, on the other hand, Jesus turns away from the fickle, often misguided, often well-meaning affections of us, and he decides instead to found his kingdom on his authority, then the community of followers he, followers he builds, this community is built on an entirely different foundation. So in verse 13, he went up on a mountain and he called, we're going to look at that word, he called to him those, notice, see it, whom he desired. He didn't call those people who were desiring him to be sure they probably were, but that's not what the passage emphasizes. He called to him those he desired and they came. He called, they came. That makes all the difference. Now, the, the word called that we see here, that's used in verse 13, it, it signifies a, a really important idea in the Bible. And, and it's the idea that, that has to do with God choosing people or electing people or calling people. And it actually runs across the Bible. Just, just let me... Let me let you feel a little bit of this. So back in the Old Testament, God, God calls Abraham and he, and he creates a people out of Abraham. And it says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, the Lord says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I think Jesus is doing something very similar in our passage. In Acts 2, when the church is born and all these people are being gathered in, Peter, in his first great sermon, he says to all these people, he says, the promise, the promise of the gospel and the spirit, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Wait, it's not for the people who are choosing to come? It's for the people who are called? John 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Jesus, just to be clear with his disciples later on in their journey together, this is recorded in John 15, verse 6. He looks at his disciples, lest they're confused, and says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. These, these various terms, choosing, calling, drawing, they, they all convey this truth that, that is just there in the Bible. Fallen human beings, they only can come back to God in a right relationship if and when God calls them to himself. Now, at once, someone may object. This is a violation of my free will. This is a violation of my hard earned right to choose. And to you, I would say first that this is simply the obvious meaning of all the passages I've just met, read. I don't know how else you would interpret. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I don't know how else you would interpret. 
no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. But, but actually beyond that, I think we need to understand something a little deeper here. The Bible is not saying that humanity was created with no possibility to come to God. No, the Bible says they actually were created in and for a relationship with God. They're hardwired for it. And the Bible is not saying that humanity was made with no will, no ability to choose or to come to anything or love anything. What the Bible is saying is that in humanity's current state, that we are unable to choose God. One writer compares fallen humanity to a bird with a broken wing. The bird is free to fly. The bird's not in a cage. Nobody's drugged the bird. The bird's totally free to fly. But because of its broken wing, it can't. It's unable to. Likewise, the natural man is free to come to God. There are no external constraints upon him or her. But he or she's unable to. And when I say come to God, I mean, what I, I don't just mean a, a, a philosophical inquiry into the first cause. I, I mean seeing the true God, seeing one's own need to repent and coming to love and serve the true God. We have broken wings, so to speak, that prevent us from flying to our refuge and strength. And, and these broken wings, they, they manifest in several ways. Let me just briefly remind you of three, three reasons we can't come to God on our own. Number one, the Bible says we have darkened minds. What it means by this is we just, we can't understand God rightly enough to come to God. Paul says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now show any natural person, Christian, non-Christian, show any natural person the beauties of creation. A vista of mountains or a beautiful mountain lake or the starry night sky or even the ocean depths. Show a person this and they have no problem responding and saying, this is glorious. But put before them the cross of Jesus Christ. Tell them that God sent his own son to save them from hell so that they can live forever in heaven. This will make no sense to them. It will not be beautiful to them. They, they will not be moved by this. They can't understand it. We can't understand these things. A colorblind man can no more choose his favorite hue of orange than a spiritually blind man can respond to his favorite attribute of God. How can someone choose God and come to God if they cannot, if they cannot see and understand him? So we have darkened minds. The Bible also says along with that we have hardened hearts. This means that we can't desire God rightly. Our desires, they run all over the place. I mean, they're there. They just don't seem to want the things that we're supposed to want the way we're supposed to want them. Now, now you wonder at this, is this really true? Let me give you one proof of how bad our desiring is. Right now, most of the human beings made for God in Washington, D.C. are not at church. In fact, they haven't even thought about God 
this Lord's day, who sent his son to die for them. They are completely unmoved by the greatest object and greatest reality in the world. If our affections were properly aligned, we would have lines for every church starting on Saturday night because people would be so desirous to be in the presence of God. But we're completely cold. How will we come to God in love when we feel nothing for him? Now, you might say at this point, okay, I think, you know, I'm a thinker and I can see how you could use philosophy to come to a point with a little bit of understanding of a first cause, kind of like Aristotle did. So I, I actually think on my own, quite thank you very much, but I, I think I could get to a belief in God on my own. And also I read the gospels. I think they're beautiful. I think I can develop an affection for God on my own. Thank you very much. Well, to you, I would say this. You think you've climbed the summit. You think you stand at the top, but you find yourself at another plateau. And you look before you and you see a towering peak. Do you know what that peak is? It's the bondage of the will. You can see and you can choose, but you cannot continue to choose and love the things or thing that you know you ought to choose and love. Augustine in his great book, Confessions, this is really what broke St. Augustine. He says, he explains that he looks back and he says, in my previous actions in my life, that there had been forged a chain of habit in which he said he was held fast, held fast, he says, not in another's shackles, listen, but in the iron links of my own will. Paul puts it this way. Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. Now notice what Paul says. Notice that Paul is aware of desire here. Paul says, for I have the desire to do what is right. Paul knows what's right. He understands. He has the desire to do it. But he says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. How could you ever deny that you don't experience life this way? that you know somewhere in your conscience the right thing that you should do and you go on not doing it. Paul sums all this up in one devastating phrase in Ephesians 2. He just says, why can't we come to God on our own? Because we're dead. Ephesians 2.1. You're dead, not, not kind of dead, not a little bit dead. You're totally dead. In your, in your trespasses and sins. So, so we've come to a helpful spot here. So why, with tens of thousands of people flying to Jesus, choosing him, does he at that moment take aside just a few men to announce to them that I have chosen you? He does this because as it says at the end of John chapter two, two it says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to men. Why? Because he knew exactly what was in men. He knew what they were like. Jesus sees a crowd and he knows they're sheep without a shepherd. And so he pulls aside 12 men and he begins to make the people of God on a completely different foundation. Not our affections for him, as nice as that probably felt for Jesus. He builds it on his authority over us. So he went up on the mountain and he called to him those he desired and they came. 
There is a qualitative difference between following Jesus because of your attraction to him or your attraction to religion or your desire to please your wife or your desire to get your kids baptized or your desire to fit in with your friends. There is a massive difference between that and following Jesus because you've been called. It is better. It is far better to be chosen and to go around acting like the most important thing in your life is your freedom to choose. Now, someone will ask, we have to turn to some implications quick, but someone may ask, what does it feel like to be chosen by God? This would take a couple more sermons to unpack, but I'll tell you something that's going to confuse you maybe even more. You know what it feels like to be chosen by God? It feels like you starting to want to choose him. It feels like starting to, to feel like life is not what it should be, that, that maybe there's more, that, that maybe, maybe there's things in your heart that have stained you that you're ashamed of and you wish they could be made clean. Like maybe there's such a thing as righteousness and you wish you could be holy and maybe there's more to life than just 77 years and a sun that burns out and everything that goes away. And maybe God did come for you so you don't have to claw your way to him. And man, wouldn't it be sweet if that thing about Jesus, loving sinners, was true, and maybe I'll go to church, maybe I'll just try. I don't feel a whole lot, but I'm going to pray. If that's going on in your life, there's a good chance you're being chosen. And then over the years, you know a tree by its fruit. Continued repentance, continued desire for God, these are the signs. But the reason, friends, we can call upon the name of the Lord is because he has called out to us. That is our great hope. A couple implications. I just have four. I'm going to say them quick. How does this affect you and me and us? Number one, it's comforting. It's comforting to know that your life doesn't depend on your own wisdom and your own willpower to choose the right way. It's comforting to know that Jesus doesn't call these men because of their merits. They're average men. I mean, they're total failures in a lot of scenes in the Bible. Rather, he chooses them because of his grace and mercy. It is comforting to know, verse 14, that Jesus chose them, read it for yourself, so that they might be with him. He wants them to be with him. He prays at John, in John's gospel, John 17, Lord, I want them to be with me. It's comforting. It's also securing. It's securing to know that the one who chose you will also keep you. Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Think of the 12 apostles. I mean, if you watch their lives, I mean, at one point, Satan just comes right out and he tries to snatch Peter. He wants to sift him. And Jesus says to Peter, I've prayed for you. Brother Peter, I've prayed for you that after you fall, you'll return. Friends, the one who chose you holds you in his hand. Your hope of remaining faithful to God is not ultimately in your ability to hold on to him. It's in his promise to hold on to you. It's securing. Third, this truth, it's challenging. You know why it's challenging? Because if we choose Jesus, like you would in a democratic election, you elect somebody, he's kind of under us. Now hold on, Jesus. We will unchoose you if you stop doing the things we want. 
Or, or we, we just choose the parts of Jesus we like, right? We love what he says over here, I choose that Jesus. Friends, if he chooses us, it completely turns the table over. We're utterly under his authority. This isn't a democratic election for Jesus. This is a sovereign king who's drawing people who are dying in their sins into new life. So it's challenging because it means we have to, we have to submit to his authority. And you know, I think this is also challenging. If I could take a moment to speak to anyone in the room who may not be a Christian, you may be thinking, this is, the cra- this is weird. Um, you may not be thinking anything. But I would say to you, ask yourself the question, how do you feel about your life being built on your own choices? Are you sure about them? Well, let me ask you this. Are you so sure that you're really the one choosing? Has, has anything about your family of origin or your experience you've had or the person you're pursuing to marry or the school you went to or where you're trying to fit in or the fact that you happen to be alive in 2022, do any of these things in fact choose you? Choose your worldview? Choose what you value? Choose the way you see yourself? Choose your secular ideas? Are you sure they don't? Friends, the Bible doesn't present us with totally free humans and then some who get in the bondage of Jesus. It presents us with slaves to sin and slaves to Jesus. Those who have been chosen by the spirit of the age and held in bondage and those who have been chosen by God and liberated by his spirit as sons and daughters. So I would just ask you, who has chosen or what has chosen you So it's challenging. Finally, it unites. And this is the last point we close. Notice that this passage isn't just Jesus taking one guy aside. He takes 12. And in choosing them for himself, he chooses them for one another. He makes a people. And this needs to dynamically impact how we think of one another, friends. Jesus does not choose simply natural friends to build his kingdom. Matthew, the tax collector, would have been seen as a pro-Roman sellout, playing with the big global powers, not caring about his people, but making money off their back. Now, Simon the Zealot, on the other hand, he would have been a nationalist. He would have been someone who so loved his country, he would have shed blood, his own blood for it. These two men would not have made natural friends, but when Jesus chose them for himself, he chose them for one another. This is why the New Testament is so full of all these exhortations and commands that Christians love one another. Because Jesus isn't building community out of your alumni club or your political party. He's building community out of his sovereign choosing. It's a wisdom known only to him, Jews and Gentiles. He will build a community. So our our responsibility is to treat one another not based on our natural affections for them, but based on God's sovereign, eternal purchase of their lives and to honor them as someone who God found and saved. So this teaching of God's choosing, it ought to unite the church in an indestructible way, even when we disagree and even when we don't naturally like one another. So let me just conclude. What's better? What is better? Your freedom to choose, all your options, or to be chosen? These men who are chosen, they will show up in the last pages of the Bible 
as the heavenly city appears in Revelation 21. And because they have been chosen, their names are written on the very foundation stones of the kingdom of God. And friends, for those God chooses now, we too will be brought into that heavenly city. So pray, pray that you would hear his voice, even his voice calling your name. Lord, we thank you um, that you choose us, that you call to us when we're deaf and blind and in bondage. And I just pray, Lord, you would just bring us along more and more into what it means to be a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Amen.